Welcome back to another episode of PageCast, a book-centered podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers. I am Annie Ulifir, and I'm the Publishing Director at Jonathan Ball. I am so excited about today's episode that will feature the naturalist and bushcraft expert Quinton Kutsia, who hails from White River. The title of Quinton's book makes me laugh every time I say it. It's called The Buck That Buries Its Poo. The wildlife conservationist Grant Fowles will be chatting to Quinton about the many intriguing facts that he shares about South Africa's wildlife. In his introduction to the book, Quinton, who has a BSc degree in zoology and microbiology from Rhodes University, writes that after spending a lot of time in the wild with different people, he was struck by the fact that they seem to be fascinated and amused by the same kinds of topics and questions, such as, why do giraffes have such long necks? How old do baobabs grow? And do frogs and toads cause warts? Quinton also sets out to dispel some of the common myths and old wives' tales people love to share around the campfire. May you find Quinton and Grant's conversation enlightening and entertaining. I'm speaking online to new author of a great book here called Quinton Kutsia, a world-renowned speaker and naturalist, bushcraft expert, entrepreneur and adventurer. And I'm quite excited today because I've been watching Quinton on TV in my youth growing up, you know, and I'm in my late 60s now. And what a pleasure to, to have him on ball. And this uh, pagecast is brought to you by Jonathan Ball. I happen to be a, a writer, an author. I'm not a writer at all. I'm, I'm a storyteller, which tells stories about the bush and adventure. Before I introduce myself as an author, thank you, Quentin, for coming on board today. Thank you, Grant, and what a pleasure it is to chat with you today. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, man, thank you. We're going we're gonna to battle because we both like to tell stories, and um, I'll have to pause in between mine. But just why I got into this big adventure, um, and I am, I, I'm an author, but I'm more of a, a conservationist, and I just uh, penned a few things, and, and a great guy called Graham Spence wrote my books as a ghostwriter. So I've written two books. Uh, one is called Saving the Lost Rhinos, and the other is called Rewilding Africa, and um, they're both published in the UK, but Jonathan Ball is our local distributor in South Africa, and it's good to see books flying out, and it's amazing to see that people in this day and age, Quentin, even with uh, audio and with all the other means uh, of uh, tablets, that people still buy books. And well done on your new book, The Buck That Buries Its Poo. I'm not sure how you ever thought of that title, but... Well, this is, um, these are the, the publishers. And when I, was, when I was talking about the book, it all started off really with another identification guide of some of our popular species. And the way I thought was, we have so many identification guides right now, and you can get the information anywhere. And people know about these things. They've got information at hand. What about providing something that gives information on what they might not know? Tell them what they don't know. Then the task came to me, so what, hello, what don't people know? Well, fortunately, I'm in a position to spend lots of time with people in the bush, all levels, whether they are tourists or safari guides or children or just amateur naturalists. 
And it struck me that quite often the same questions, the same topics came up. What also struck me is that there were many myths and legends and misconceptions that I was hearing over and over again. And I thought, well, let's put this in the book. And one of the things, to get back to your question, I wrote about was the Steenbok. And the Steenbok is the only bovid little antelope that buries its poo. It urinates and buries it as a cat would do. And this was one of the very first things that I wrote about. The publisher loved it. And um, suggest we kept on speaking, referring to the book as the buck that buries its poop, and that's where it came from. It's also a title I thought that they um, that they they clever at because it's um, it it attracts people. It's different. It's there for marketing. Yeah, I've noticed that too, Quentin. I didn't really want the title "Saving the Last Rhinos" because you know there's these amazing people like um, um, Lawrence Anthony and Dr. Ian Player that have been before us, you know, and uh, I didn't want to be the embarrassing guy that uh, walked into the bar and said, oh, he has this bloody bugger that thinks that he's saving the lost rhinos, you know, and many other people are doing it. So you're right, everything is in a title, and it does attract people because, you know, they buy the book because the title is good. So, yeah, I, I like the title, and obviously it's got the 101 other fascinating facts about SS Wildlife, which I found is uh, incredible. So we'll go through a couple of those. There's also in this title that if there would be if there was a follow up to this book, we'd probably call it the back that buries its poo too, and that's got a certain <laughs> ring to it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it has. Eh? Fascinating thing is, is that we both. Um, well, I, I come from the Eastern Cape, and and you studied at Rhodes, and uh, we've got a lot of yarns there. And I know you're a former director of Joburg Zoo along with another great man, Billy Labaskrachny, that's just released another book called Soul of the Lion. I was on the yes. Literary Festival with him. You've also traveled to over 40 countries, speaking to thousands, 3,000 presentations, mate, and uh, and to, to boot a, a classical pianist, which is amazing. I don't know, you couldn't be further away from the bush on a piano. That's true. Um, I spent my youth uh, playing the piano. I put myself through varsity playing the piano. Nowadays, I play very softly because I can't play hardly. Yeah. So, I don't know if you like, uh, if we're allowed to tell anecdotes, but my grandmother cut a CD in her 92nd year playing the piano. And her favorite joke was this old bugger came up to a chap on the piano and he had short pants on and he was playing on a rimpy stool. I don't know if you know a rimpy stool, one with leather thongs. And with these short pants, you know, his um, sack was hanging through the one side, through the rimpy stool. And this old deaf bugger came up to him and said, Sir, would you mind, do you know that your balls are hanging through the rimpy stool? And he said, No, my dear, but if you whistle the tune, I'm sure I could play it. <laughs> just a couple of anecdotes here, just to... Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be the guy talking. And what I find very interesting is I was hopeless at biology, Quinton. And the breakdown of your topics here are just incredible. I mean, you've got mammals, birds, reptiles and amphibians, fish, arthropods and plants. That I find is incredible. It's almost like going back to my standard six biology. When I started writing down some of the concepts that I wanted to discuss in the book, I found that there were 
interesting thing. Everyone was always telling me how baobabs are thousands, 10,000 years old. And when I researched that, I found that the oldest baobabs in this country are probably 1,800, 1,200, those two. So, so I wanted to talk about trees. And then they talk about birds, for example, how, how honey guides attract honey badgers. And that's not true. It's a myth. It's never happened ever. There's no recorded evidence whatsoever of a honey guide attracting a honey badger. So birds came into it. And obviously there's the mammals and then the arthropods and the snakes and the spiders and the myths and the legends and the bats. And that's why we then grouped them into these taxonomical orders without wanting to make the book scientific. But yeah. otherwise it would have just been a mixture, a dear McCarspel. Yeah, I don't think I even you knew about uh, Carl Linnaeus, uh, this taxonomist and physician who formalized nomenclature, uh, the the modern system of naming organisms. Yes, and he was the father of modern taxonomy. Elaborate on that because I think there'll be some learned people, not like maybe you and I, listening to this podcast that may want to have some news on. In the beginning of the book, um, actually one of the scientific editors, a brilliant woman, Linda Pretorius, who who has what we call a pedantometer, and she was watching the science as I was writing and keeping me on the straight and narrow with that. And quite often I would refer to a little bit of classification. For example, it's interesting that a hyena belongs more to the cat family than it does to the dogs. Mm. And then audaces are related, in fact, to elephants. And um, porcupines are not related to hedgehogs, and hedgehogs are not rodents. And it gets very messy. So I didn't want to get it too complex, but she suggested, why don't we just put a little bit about taxonomy in a layman's way, in right in the beginning of the book, to help understand why certain things are placed where they are in the natural kingdom. And so without getting too heavy about it, we start off with that. You've really touched on a good thing there. And um, obviously there was uh, Charles Darwin and Jean-Paptiste Lamarck and bringing understanding to the modern David Attenborough life on Earth as we see on our next Netflix TV screens. Hasn't that been quite crucial in bringing... um, ecology or or nature into everybody's living room as well. It has, indeed. I think uh, especially Attenborough and the wildlife programs that we see on the BBC or that we see in National Geographic, those things are perennial. They will never, ever, they can't stop. And we're learning so much and we're getting to the depths of the oceans. We're getting into the driest deserts, the top of the coldest mountains, onto the beaches. Mm. We are seeing now in our living rooms creatures that we never knew existed, but with good production. They're bringing out these fascinating mysteries, the remarkable things, which take us to a new level of fascination in the in the animal kingdom. And that's what this is all about. So I hope that the book that I did has been influenced by that sort of thing to provide a little bit more, but in the Southern African context. Yeah, Quinton, I think, um, you know, I've, I've written, yeah, the, the book is a must for everyone, whether you're a game ranger, a bush lover, a raw tourist on a jeep or staying in a lodge or picking up on your way out of the airport. You've fallen in love with your game ranger, which is called khaki fever, something that people, you know, almost die more of than malaria. Yes. (laughs) 
I hope that is what's going to happen. The beauty of this book is that if you say traveling through the Kruger Park, it's not, firstly, we must understand, it's not a book that you need to start. Mm. And it's a story that flows through to the end that finishes. You can open this book anywhere you like and something will come up that hopefully is of great value to you. And I've already had feedback from some safari guides saying, they love it because now they can tell their buddies stuff that they didn't know. And that's exactly where we wanted to go with this. Uh, You know, I'm not as well-knowledged as you, but I've been in conservation three decades and I've lived in the bush maybe for six. And I'm finding fascinating stuff here. One of the things that I really, that also picked up my, because I've been marketing, I'm a Kala, our game reserve in the Eastern Cape for over 20 years, I think I've been to 22 in Darbas in a row, you know. And the big thing about the big five, and that we both agree that that is a, a metaphor that really stuffs a lot of people's minds up, you know, in, in conservation. And uh, there's about 20 animals that, that are as important, not as important, but that just kill the, the actual experience. Huh? Well, I still find it inconceivable that the Great hunters, the Friedrich Courtney Salou and teams that arrived here in the 1800s with big guns and then tried to tame the African plains. We all know that they coined the term Big Five because they were the most dangerous animals. But that now has become the biggest marketing strapline in Africa, whether Kenya, Southern Africa, Central, doesn't matter where, you've got to see the Big Five. And how many tourists don't slink home disappointed, blaming the lodge or safari guides for not being able to tick the five boxes? And that's a shame when they saw wild dogs, where they saw artfark, where they saw giraffes, cheetahs, but mm. because they didn't see, say, a buffalo, the trip was not successful. And that's a remarkable, just a remarkable thought, really. It is, you know, and I, uh, two weeks ago I was walking with chimpanzees in Chayambura just off Queen Elizabeth Park. Incredible. And you've got the gorillas and then you've got pangolins and, and your first sighting of a antelope that is different, like the lesser kudu, you know, or even a different gazelle or Ugandan cob as opposed to, um, you know, the all, the, the... all the diker species they have there. The diker species. We only have three in Southern Africa, but I've seen them in the Congo, you know, the zebra diker and all these odd-looking things, you know. There's a lot of other things about mammals here. Um, the, the one about the giraffe as well, That uh, the myth about the giraffe, uh, Quinton. It's not a myth as such, but it's a, it's a common misconception to say that giraffes have long necks so that they can browse where all the other animals don't reach. It was even Darwin in The Origin of the Species proposed this. And he said, well, that's why they've got uh, these long necks to give them advantage, a competitive advantage over other creatures. Well, not long ago in China, they found the skulls, the bones of an animal called Discocetix, which is the forerunner to today's giraffes. And they are the ancestors, and these things have this heavy lobe on the head, and it was very clear with the thick neck and the, the neck bones that they competed for mating rights by bashing heads. And over time, this has developed, and today, giraffes have long necks, all the better to subdue the opponent with. And we know, and you know, Grant, that giraffes can knock each other down, even kill one another with those mighty blows mm. that are inflicted with these extremely long necks. And that's the reason why they have long necks. And it's incidental 
that they use these long necks to be able to graze where other creatures can't, or browse rather. But it's also important that researchers have shown that probably over 60% of the time giraffes will browse with their necks held vertically to the ground. Yeah. Okay? Not up. So they don't necessarily only eat on the treetops, and their necks are long to be able to provide dominance over other males and mating rights and to pass on the best genes. Yeah, imagine the landscape in Africa without a giraffe with a sunset setting. Um, it would be incredible there. Eh? Yeah, and, and also hippos. What is your story on the hippos there, um, Quinton? Well, there, 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 were, there were a number. I think the first is that um, I'm surprised how many people didn't realize that hippos can't swim. If you were at sea and you tossed a hippo overboard on a ship, it would sink to Davy Jones's locker unceremoniously, because they don't swim. They could probably paddle around a bit, but hippos need to be on Mother Earth, and they bound around, much like those visions we see of Neil Armstrong bouncing on the moon. That's how hippos bounce on the bottom of the ground. Um, So hippos can't swim. But what was more interesting is that there's this myth about hippos that sweat blood in the sun. And, of course, they're exposed to a very, very harsh ultraviolet treatment. No animals can survive that. They don't have fur. So they they give off a specific substance. It's called, interestingly, hipposudoric acid. And it's not sweat. It's from glands below the skin. Sweat glands are normally in the skin. These glands are below the skin. And they exude this clear fluid. And once the fluid hits the atmosphere it begins to turn a reddy brown. And that's where the word blood comes from. It has enough viscosity or flow to cover the whole animal's body. And the reason for this is that it's both a sunblock and a sunscreen. And there's a third function for this hypposudoric acid. It's also a potent antiseptic. And that's why hippo males that have been gouged with fights and open wounds and living in ponds, which are often quite dirty, they don't actually suffer infections, which is quite remarkable. Um, So these are the things that we we learn about hippos. Oh, and they don't stamp out fires either, which is another common Like the rhino. Like the rhino, yes. But um, they also one of the Africa's most dangerous animals. Is Is that true in your book? It is true. The The sad thing is that in Africa, many people need to live close to rivers or water bodies. I mean, that's uh, humans require that. And that's also where hippos live. And the hippo out of the water at night is a, with those remarkable tusks and extreme power. A, one slash with that mighty head and that terrific armament, if it came into contact with the puny human, it would tear them to pieces and you don't survive that. So yes, of course the animal that is responsible for most deaths is in fact the mosquito, but um, the hippo is the mammal that kills most people. Also what I threw in here that um, maybe you didn't have is that monkeys don't have blue nuts, or they do have blue nuts, but they're not actually blue. No, they're not actually blue and neither do those particular monkeys play the piano. Um, (laughs) <laughs> on a on a rugby stool, the, the the reason for that, many of the the primates, 
interestingly enough, have these fascinating colors like mandrels. The mandrel baboons, they have reds and greens and blues. Mm. So the, the, the scrotum of the vervet isn't actually blue. It's more a turquoise color. And there's no blue pigment whatsoever. No pigment. What happens is there are collagen fibers that are arranged in a remarkably precise way. And these fibers, because of the arrangement, will absorb all colors and only reflect the blue or turquoise. And if you were able to space those collagen fibers slightly more or less, a totally different color would be reflected. So the interesting thing about the vervet's blue balls or nuts is that they don't actually have pigment. It's a reflection of color as a result of collagen spacing. Fascinations of nature. Yeah, Quentin, you bring the life out of, uh, I feel like we should be on a game drive vehicle now. But just for our line, uh, Panthera Leo, I see uh, that lines don't have retractable claws. Often on game drives, and then your safari guide will say, well, they have these retractable claws. Then I say, well, where are the claws normally? Then they say, well, they retracted. Then I say, well, then they're not retractable. They always retracted. They are protractable claws. Lions push their claws out. They don't actively withdraw them. They are normally in the withdrawn position. It's just a, it's just a phrase, I think, that, well, I'm not that pedantic about it, but it makes more sense. No, I'm, I'm moving on to snakes and reptiles. It's not my, my strength. Um, although I do, when in my um, travels in the bush, I see most of our community people eating pythons. And, and I think yes. one of the reasons why uh, we started feeding the wildlife community with Kingsley Holgate, because we found, a, I was actually with Joe Peterson, the rugby player, and we found a python being killed by a community and I said to them, hey, who's I in Zaneland? And they said, hey, we're hungry, man. COVID, you know, the shops are closed or there's no food around. So we decided to feed people through seeing this python. It was about six meters. So, wow. yeah, it was just so sad, you know, to, and I've seen about six or seven pythons being killed for food. Um, but um, what is your story on pythons? Well, I must agree with you. They are the most. Ma- I was fortunate enough this last weekend. I was in the Kruger and we saw a we saw a massive python. And um, I hope that we don't always need to see them in our protected box because I know yeah in White River where I've I've been in the forest here and we've also found large pythons. We've also found smaller ones, which is very mm. exciting because they're breeding here. But you know, it's not a trick to kill a python. And unfortunately. There's this, there still exists with many people this adage that the only good snake is a dead snake, no matter what mm. it is. So my thing is that pythons are probably amongst the most dramatic snakes that we have on this continent and should be protected at all costs. Obviously, they're constrictors, as as the listeners probably those yes. that don't know, and and others like puffed, as people think that are extremely. But you say they're 100% odorless in the book. Well, this was a remarkable thing. Professor Graham Alexander from the Herp Lab at Wits University, they work with snakes, and that's what this is the research they do. And they observed that mm. both dogs and mongooses would run right over puffers and not pick up their scent, unlike mm. with other snakes. 
So there was a, a lady called Ashley K. Miller, one of the research students, and she did some research. They went to Monte, uh, Monte Cassino Bird Gardens and they got meerkats and they got dogs and they trained them. The long and the short of this, I'm not going to go through the details, is they determined that puff adders give off no odor, no smell whatsoever, zero. Dogs and meerkats have amazing noses. They didn't pick up the thing. So they took it to elephants, which smell very much better than both those previous ones I mentioned. Elephants couldn't do it. So more, ex more experiments were done, and they found that buffeters are probably the only known vertebrate in the world which is completely devoid of scent, even as a result of just body functions. I'm not talking yeah. about uh, uh, defecation or that, just living. There's no scent whatsoever. And this, sure. of course, is perfect for what we call a lie and wait predator, which is what a puff adder is. Yeah. So imagine if it was lying there, waiting for prey to come along, but then hyenas and jackals or whatever could discover it. They can, can't get away. They're not fast. They can't get into trees. Hmm. But it's a remarkable record to have, to be the only creature um, to display what's called chemical crypsis. And that's its form of defense. No smell whatsoever. And yeah, in, uh, obviously, I'm in KwaZulu-Natal doing this old, um, interview now with Quentin and you in White River, obviously. Um, the Zulu people, anything black, whether it be a big dog or a black leopard yes. or something, is always more deadly, isn't it? It's always more deadly. The thing is that um, there's a very, very common misconception that because puffins lie so still, apart from being odorless, which we didn't know, they're trying to be stepped on. And everyone's terrified of stepping on a puff adder because you will get bitten. Hmm. Well, the same Professor Graham Alexander from Vitch University, were, they were tracking puff adders that had chips in them. And the students would try and pick up the signals and often stand on the puff adder because they so well camouflaged. And not one of those students was ever bitten. And so they did an experiment. They put a, took a gumboot. They filled it with rocks. They dangled it off the edge of a broomstick and artificially stepped on lots and lots of puff adders. They did the research, and not one puff adder took a bite at the boot because it would give itself away. So, in fact... For those of us that have spent much time in the bush, we've probably stepped on many puff adders in our lives yeah. and we've never have known about it. Yeah. You know, the other interesting thing while we're talking snakes here, Quentin, is that we're doing a project up uh, in Lower Black and Filosi, and there's a monkey project called RVP, our vervet project. It's the oldest um, research out of the university in Switzerland. And um, the numerous puff adders have eaten vervet monkeys with collars on and the collars actually yeah and and they they beep back to the python and the pythons uh, digest the collars and through the enzymes or whatever and and this is probably your game not mine the collars actually get disappear they erode away that's, that's amazing a, that's a true and story pythons ate the vervet monkey. The pythons ate the vervets, yeah. Okay, yes, I yes. think on two or three occasions, collared monkeys have been eaten by pythons in their research. And it's quite mm -hmm. interesting. It's the, it's the biggest, they're, they're researching the biggest troop of monkeys, I think in Africa, 
Um, there are 82 of them, and uh, they've got everything. They do DNA. They have 40 collars on. Um, they've got language. They've predicted their language, their call signs, their snake. The snake alarm calls are different to I shouldn't be telling these stories because we're talking about your book, but no, I just no, thought that is fascinating. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then just getting back to, to the chameleon now as well. Um, I mean, how is this the, the tongue of the chameleon at such speed is almost driving a Ferrari? It is. You know, it's not to 100 kilometers in a hundredth of a second. Now, the best cars can do that in two seconds, not one hundredth of a second. Yep. And the, the launched tongue of a chameleon, to put it in another way, exceeds a force of 50 Gs, which is five times more than the acceleration of a fighter jet taking off. This sure. is in a chameleon when it's catching a locust. Yeah. Even more reason why you should buy the book, <laughs> The Back That Buries Its Poo, <laughs> because you can't get this information on Google. You know? Well, it's just the most fascinating thing. But how that actually works, and and when a chameleon does fire its tongue at a little grasshopper in the distance, it actually compensates for drop like an artillery bomb. It aims higher, and it will strike that, and then there's a specific way in which it reels the tongue back and reloads, resets and reloads this whole mechanism to fire again using its two eyes sighting mechanisms, the two eyes, like I'll refer to them as, they look like concrete mixers, you know, the, yeah. the, the cement mixer eyes. Yeah. And um, they then do the sighting and take note of the compensation and how far it is, and then bang, this remarkable acceleration of this incredible structure, which is the chameleon's tongue. Unbelievable, eh? Cheapest. But let's move on to... If if you're in the bush and you've seen your big animals, I, I wouldn't use the name because we've sworn at it now, and you've seen all the plants. I'm a plant man, by the way. I love trees. I'm not very good at small things. But birds, you know, I've just been up in um, the Chayambura area and seen the nesting sites of the flamingos. They weren't there with, you know, the, all the salt lakes and so on. It's yeah. quite incredible. And they're standing, I mean, you say that they, they why do they stand on one leg? Well, there's been a lot of theories that could have been some of those lakes have a very caustic, uh, it could be to avoid the, it could be to, to try and conserve heat, it could be to try and conserve energy. There were many, many theories about this. But when some chaps in were doing research, they actually were able to take, mm -hmm. this is interesting, a dead flamingo and position it in a specific way on one leg. And then the whole universe inside that flamingo comes together and things lock into place. Because here's the bottom line. A flamingo is far more stable on one leg than it is on two. It shifts its center of gravity directly over that one foot, locks in position, and goes to sleep and uses no energy, virtually none, to actually stand upright. Where if it was on two feet, it would be constantly making small little nuances and adaptations to try and stay upright, like we do. Yeah, one of the most incredible pictures you've got of Africa in photography is one of these places where there's flamingo nesting sites. You know, I've seen it at Lake Manyara, again, um, on the rift, you know, just beautiful to see that this pink, pinkness. And uh, the color pink is, is what? It's from the food they eat. No, it's, yes, it is. It's from carotenoids. And, and um, they're often in the food, in the shrimps, and it's they actually accumulate that substance which goes to their feathers 
And that's where the pink comes from. There's lots of different kinds. For example, in the Caribbean, the flamingos are very much pinker. And that's mm. because there's more of those carotenoids available there. When we were at the zoo, we used to have to buy that substance and feed it to the flamingos. Otherwise, they go what? eventually. That's the default color. And yep. in Africa, you'll find our flamingos, the, the greater and the lesser, are more whiter than the mm -hmm. overseas ones because they're not as many carotenoids. And I'm amazed to see the Arctic turn, eh, Quentin? I mean, that uh, flies three times to the moon and back or whatever. That's as much distance as it covers. Well, their the round trip in a year is between 60 and 80,000 kilometers in a year. They're the creatures which probably experience more sunlight than any other living thing on the planet. Because when, you know, the Arctic winter and the Arctic summer, so when it becomes, that's where they breed in the Arctic north, up north, and when winter comes, they follow the sun down to be in the full sun of the Antarctic summer. So they're yeah. in full sun all year round. And like you said, over a 20-year period, those trips would be at a distance of to the moon and back. Incredible. A couple of yeah. times, yes. And I think another one on your sand grass here um, is, is the amount of water that they keep in their feathers. I know at sunset when you're having your GNT and your binoculars and you see these things incredibly, they just come out of nowhere and they all come into the water's edge. Uh, isn't that one of the most amazing sights? Remarkable thing. But how do they carry the water? And they're specially modified feathers on the male's belly. And they are designed to act like a little sponge. And he actually sways in the water to soak these feathers. And here's the thing. They can fly up to 30 kilometers, 30 kilometers to carry about just over a tablespoon, to put it that way. It's about 22 mils, just under a tablespoon, of water to their chicks. Their, waters, their chicks start eating hard seeds immediately, and they are obligate drinkers. They have to drink water. And it's been shown that they mainly feed the chicks in the morning, interestingly enough, and not yeah. in the evening. And only the males? Yes, yes, the males. But uh, in Botswana, there were distances recorded of 30 kilometers that they fly to carry that water to their nest. That yeah, incredible. Yeah, and then the greenback heron, tell me how that catches its fish. Well, they go along and they, with their pincer-like bill, they'll catch a small insect back to the water's edge, lean out over the water, and then pop the insect under the surface. It then pops back to the top. And as the insect floats slightly with the current, it follows it with a bill. Should a fish come and investigate that insect, bang, it catches it. But what's interesting to me, and I actually had this on the program Felt Focus many years ago, is that these birds have learned that from fishermen, they can now use pieces of rusk or bits of bread, which they put out into the water to attract fish and then catch them. So it's the only bird that we know of that uses bait as a fisherman to get its meal. Yes, so they're also adjusting to climate change because there's not much bait around. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah and, and getting back to the next section we've got on arthropods, I'm trying to go through everything here because um, yes. you know there's just so much content in this book. Why do scorpions grow under UV light? It's still subject to research. What I find more interesting is that that scorpion torch that everyone's buying nowadays that makes the scorpion glow. Over the last few years, we've discovered hundreds of new scorpions because of the scorpion torch thing. In the yes, past, yes. we never knew they existed. But interestingly enough, if you put a scorpion 
in a jar in a museum, the whole jar looks like a fluorescent light if you mm. put the scorpion torch in it. And even more interesting is that they found fossils of scorpions, which are millions of years old, that still glow in the rock face when you shine on them. And they're and that's remarkable. They, no, they've been dead for millions of years. But they actually probably use the body to detect UV light. That's fine bits of UV light coming out of space. And the more light that strikes their body, they don't like that. So it, it tells them how much of their body is exposed hmm. or whether they should hide or not. And that's one of the theories as to why there is this whole UV sensitivity thing. And tell me, millipedes, how do they use uh, chemical uh, warfare for defense? Well, I said that because years ago, even today, you'll find that entomologists in the field, when they go and collect insect samples, they would take a millipede. And put it into the bottle and then put the samples, be it a butterfly or whatever it is, into that bottle. And the insect dies because of the chemicals that the millipede gave off. It's like a gas chamber. It's iodines and even concentrated hydrocyanic acid. And that's the chemical warfare that they use in their own defense. Interestingly, You'll often find millipedes in the scats of uh, civets and, you know, carnivores. Mm. They eat them. They're immune to that. And, you know, Quentin, uh, because of my love of trees now, I've just put in uh, um, Combretum and Berbe. That's the hardequil, is it right? That's the hardequil. The only tree that almost doesn't float and yet ships at sea can <laughs> cross the oceans when they concrete. Yeah, well, that's because of uh, another principle. But... You know, there's a tree that's heavier, the, the apiculatum, Combritum apiculatum, the red bush willow, is actually more dense than the hardequil. But a hardequil is a remarkably impressive tree, and it's known as the 3,000-year-old the tree. The old Buddha used to say it grows for a 1,000 years. It takes a 1,000 years to die, and then it stands in the bush for another 1,000 years. Yeah, yeah. But that's not, that's not entirely true, of course. And also, just to throw something on trees and, and invasives, or, or that may be not in the book, but just chatting generally as a conservationist, uh, I see Dacrostatus cinerea all over the problem in, we have in Natal. And I've just been in Uganda now, um, looking at a black rhino project, and our place is ideal because it's full of Dacrostatus. Well, the sickle bush cinerea cinerea, my daughter did a project here at school, and they had to learn some trees, and, and they were taught that it's called the Chinese lantern. Yeah. And I was furious. I went to the school and said, we do not have these trees by these names in this country. It yes. shouldn't, we mustn't teach the kids that. But it's also <laughs> known because of that beautiful flower that it has. It's yeah. known by some of the tribes in Africa as Mupangara, which is tassels fit for a chief's hat. And they really? decorate their hats with the, with the sickle bush. Tassels, yes. Yeah, it's interesting. My um, partner at Project Rhino, uh, Karlin Ruet, um, she did her master's on Dacrostatus in Madikwe by um, spraying it with molasses. And molasses? Yeah, and the elephants devoured these uh, trees. I mean, it's quite labor-intensive, but because of the smell, they actually destroyed the, the, the invasive plant more um, with molasses. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Well, I shouldn't be telling you things because we're actually talking about your book. But, you know, no, Quentin, no. I, I'm just uh, going through 
some of the um, the accolades and the things that you've got, yeah, you know, um, because I want the reader to to know. Uh, one of the chirps here was a fascinating book, wonderful prezi for anybody remotely interested in wildlife, totally unlike any other wildlife book I've ever come across. Any chirps on that? Well, I think it is exactly that. It is unlike other wildlife books. It's not an identification guide. It's not mm. um, a behavior guide. It's, it's myths legends it's getting back to the truth it's scientifically based it's based on science and yeah. it's uh, to create a better understanding and wonder for our wildlife things that we didn't know and if you're yeah. remotely interested in the bush this would hopefully boost your knowledge yeah another reader says superb great clarity seamless educational entertaining and humorous a must for anyone that loves or lives or works in the bush and then another one, yeah, just before you uh, chirp again, the book offers behind the scenes interesting scientific information and enlightens and entertains, as we have now found it. Yeah. We're not um, we're not ending now because I'm just going to talk about you've got one of my best loves, and that's the protected areas and biodiversity and provincial places, you know. And um, South Africa have got 19 or 20 uh, national parks and you've highlighted them as major places of importance. In the African Protected Areas Agreement, which I went to last year in Rwanda as a, as a resource, uh, we've got a, a target of, of producing 30% under biodiversity by 2030. And we're far short, Quentin, at 8% in South Africa, I think. I know. We are far, far short. Um, I think I mentioned there that other there, there are certain countries which have huge amounts compared with us, very much smaller places than we are. But I think we've got a we've got a long way to go. What I did is we've got all the national parks, uh, Mapungubwe, and it, I tried to give an understanding of what their names mean. Yeah. Something like Uga is obvious, but um, what the, what Shushluwe would mean, and, you know, all those names. Yeah. And a gullus, where does it come from? Why? What does a gullus mean? Who called yeah. it that? Um, and that's what I put in there. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely fascinating. Um, Rwanda is, is pretty good. They have over 30%. Um, the Seychelles, as you put in your book, um, was 61% under biodiversity. I know it's an island state. And we're sitting at eight. Yeah, so we've got a lot to do, you know. One of the things that I wanted to highlight with uh, your ability in the book is uh, the storytelling ability that you've got, and, and this comes out of your public speaking and all that sort of thing. And you'll realize now having a book, as I have, having a book to sign at all these events, Quentin, will be you know, incredible, you know, and I think Jonathan Ball will profit from it as well, as well as you. And it may get more people to fall in love with Africa, you know. It is such a thrill, but by the way, isn't there a link with you? Tell us about rewilding Africa and David Attenborough. Yeah, um, I uh, we we I, I gave him a copy uh, through a, a very good lady that's on our board in the UK called Donna Stimson. She's on the Windsor Council, and she she gave him a copy, and she also gave um, Prince William a copy, and uh, they both replied to us, you know, which was very very humbling. A signed uh, reply. Whether they've read it or not is another story, mate, because, you know, you just can't get to all these things. You know, I I also love reading, but, you you know, there's so much literature to read and so many emails to read that uh, you can't get to all this work, you know. Mm. Well, but, that's wonderful. It's wonderful yeah. to get that recognition from them. Perhaps you should go across there and read them snippets before they go to bed at night. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right. Eh? And just um, just on the rhino, you mentioned some very interesting things. Since rhino is my work daily, um, I try and raise money to, to fight the rhino cause. I am a director of Project Rhino. Um, and, you know, it's, isn't it sad that we've had to dehorn rhinos as, as an intervention to keep these things on our planet? It is sad. Um, I've tried to try to put some perspective into that. Everybody says they blame nations. They say it's the Chinese. Well, you know, when you're looking at the price of rhinos, what I try to bring out there is that it's not the average person that's that's utilized. It's only for the mega, mega wealthy. Um, but be that as it may, Two things struck me. The first was the big five. The hunters never made a distinction between white rhinos or black rhinos. They just said a rhino. But I think if there was a distinction, it would probably have been the black rhino. Would you agree with that, being more dangerous, perhaps? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Well, it is. Uh, And and the second thing is it's just one of the saddest things that that we have to face on on this planet at the moment. And the money that's going into to protect these absolutely magnificent creatures which yeah. it's not just here it's all over in india you know the one horned and they're yeah, having yeah. the same problems yeah and you know um I, I saw my old man the other day uh quentin and he also he just regaled about you telling the bushman story now i just want to maybe end off on that because uh you know you are world renowned for telling the story of survival and when you put out to you and he's 87 on oxygen and he says, ah, I'm bloody useless anymore, you know, nowadays. And and one of your stories in the old days or, or in your public storytelling is the, the means of survival and how they just leave you under a bush to die. Well, there, there was a great practicality in the, in the ancient times about life and death and usefulness. Um, there are even stories about um, women that have had that had twins, and in rough times, you couldn't look after two of them. Of course, these are concepts which we in our modern world can't understand. But the story about the the sand tribes um, is all about. It's a business talk. It's boardroom talk, and it's about strategy and planning, and it's about driving profits, knowing your customer, adapting to environments, and it's got everything to do with boardroom business, but it only involves the natural system and the way that it's happened for thousands of years. In fact, Mm. what I'm saying is that our economy is derived from our ecology, really. That's what it's about. Yeah, no, well done, man. Cheapers, and and, uh, I think you've definitely got two or three books in you. What is the second one called? Uh, The Buck That Buries Its Poo (laughs) Too. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's a good start. We'll have to hear what they say about that. Yes, yes. And I'd love to talk to you before we do, if that ever happens, because I think there's a lot of tales from you that would be included in such a book. Yeah, you know, we've had some great storytellers. Uh, I listened to Kingsley Holgate, um, a great friend of mine and partner, as well as Brian Mullins, Alan Vire, and um, Rob Kasky. You know, you up there with the best. And um, it's been for years. Kingsley's been saying to me, oh, "Quinton, could see a phone him, and you'll be you'll be good on the speaking circuit." And I've never quite broken into that. Um, I just use my books to to raise money, you know. And um, and certainly, I think your books through Jonathan Ball are going to take off now. Um, and and well done to you, mate. Well, I'm so grateful that Jonathan Ball gave me the opportunity to do this. I think it's. Uh, it's been called, one of the punters said, it's a book that's long overdue. 
because nobody's really done something that's got this angle on wildlife. Yeah, well done. And I think uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to just end off by saying um, go to any of your leading bookstores uh, and buy the book, The Buck That Buries Its Poo. Sorry about my dirty jokes and, and hogging the limelight, yeah. Not at all. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you. And thanks for um, pulling out uh, the interesting parts of the book. And I, I hope that it goes a long way to creating a better understanding and love for our incredible wildlife in this country. Thanks to Jonathan Ball for letting us do this thing. Over and out. Thank you, Grant. Thanks for listening to this episode. And we hope that you'll join us again next week. Until then, happy reading.